here today to remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The victory won over sin, death, and the grave. But before we do that, I want to take a step back, way back. I want to focus on the cross and, and why Jesus died there. And it all began at the beginning in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in disobedience and rebellion against God's command. That was when sin entered the world. And it's been a problem with humanity ever since. We just have had a problem with sin, with obedience to God. And sin separates us from God who is holy. Sin is an affront to God. He cannot tolerate it. So because of His love for us, God had a plan to redeem us, to atone for sin and restore the relationship that was broken because of our sin. And He began laying out that plan in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, we find the story of Abraham and the son of promise, Isaac. We read that God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. Yet Abraham had only one son, Isaac. And as a test, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. So, Abraham took Isaac to Mount Moriah. And they'd probably made sacrifices there before. And as they walked up the mountain, Isaac was puzzled. And I read this from Genesis chapter 22, verses 6 through 8. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Isaac didn't know that he was to be the sacrifice. And as Abraham was preparing to plunge the knife into his only son, God stopped him saying, Don't harm the boy. Now I know you fear me because you were willing to give up your only son. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 13, the Bible says that there was a ram caught in a thicket of thorns and Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of his son. Abraham had no idea how prophetic his words and this incident on Mount Moriah would be. Centuries after Abraham and Isaac walked up Mount Moriah, Jesus, God's only son, would carry the wood, the crossbeam to which he would be nailed, up to Mount Calvary. There he would hang on a cross to be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. God would indeed provide the Lamb. Then we move forward in time from the time of Abraham until when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. 
God sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. Pharaoh refused even after God had sent a series of plagues upon the land. Finally, God announced one final judgment upon Egypt. And whenever God pronounces judgment, He always gives a way to escape the judgment as well. He instructed the Hebrew families to take a lamb without spot or blemish, a perfect lamb, and sacrifice it. They were to take the blood from the lamb and apply it to the sides and top of the doors of their houses. Then they were to roast the lamb and enter into their homes and and eat it. God said, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn. And I will bring judgment upon all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. That's why it's called the Passover. When God saw the blood, His judgment passed over those families. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes this, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When God sees the blood of the lamb, Jesus, applied to the doorposts of our hearts, His judgment passes over us as well. And then we move forward in time to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. Prophet Isaiah wrote these words about 700 years before Jesus' coming. And this passage of Scripture is called the passage regarding the suffering servant. And this is what he wrote. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. That's because he would bear God's wrath for our sin upon himself. But he was pierced for our transgressions, pointing to the way that Jesus would die. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all, our sins. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet, who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He would die. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, 
He will see His offspring. All those who believe in what Christ did on the cross will are His offspring, would be His offspring. And He will prolong His days and the will of the Lord will prosper in His hand. After He has suffered... He will see the light of life. He will be resurrected and be satisfied. By His knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give Him a portion among the great and He will divide the spoils with the strong. Because He poured out His life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Praise God. And then in Psalms 22, verse 16, King David writes prophetically and gives us again insight into how the Messiah will die. He said, My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And so in the book of Mark, chapter 15, we see that prophecy fulfilled. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. Here Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. They dressed him in a purple robe, robe, and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And it tells us then, once they had done that, they struck him repeatedly on the head with a staff. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Jesus was the once for all, unblemished, sinless, perfect sacrifice. The spotless Lamb of God whose life was given to pay the penalty of our sins. No other sacrifice, no lamb, no goat, no bull, no amount of money was good enough, complete enough, sufficient enough to atone for your sins and mine. Only Jesus could do that. And Jesus understood the kind of death he would suffer. 
The Romans used crucifixion as the primary means of execution for criminals, insurrectionists, foreigners, and deserters from the Roman army. You might say they had refined the art of killing people in the most excruciating and agonizing way possible. It was their practice to place the crosses of those being executed along the roadways so that all passing by would witness the suffering of the condemned as a warning and deterrent. Jesus knew when He went to the cross the kind of death He would suffer. But the good news today is that the cross represented here, the cross we see on the steeples of many churches, the cross we see on pins that we wear and attached to chains around our necks, the cross in most paintings is representative of the cross that Jesus died on. But those are sanitized versions. Try to picture this morning, just for just a moment, the cross on which Jesus died. See, the one that Jesus died on looks very different from most that we see in the paintings or on churches. There were holes in the crossbeam and the upright where His hands and feet were nailed. The wood would be stained with blood from the crown of thorns on His head. Remember, they placed that on His head and then they hit Him on the head with a staff. You can imagine the thorns being driven into the flesh on His head. His back was torn to ribbons by the flogging He had endured and from the nails driven through His hands and feet. I can't imagine what Jesus went through on the cross. And why did He do that? Well, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23, it tells us that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in in a verse that many of us know by heart and maybe learned as children, John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by, from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And in Hebrews 9.22, it says, In fact, According to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4, it says, For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, it's only the blood of Jesus that can do that. Jesus shed His blood 
for our sins on a Roman cross. And before I continue with today's message, because I certainly want to talk about the resurrection, I think it's important, as Jesus commanded us, to remember what it cost him to bear our sins on the cross. So in a few moments, we will partake of communion together. See, we're instructed in 1 Corinthians 11.28, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And I would tell you this morning that communion really only honors God and becomes truly meaningful for those of us who have experienced the forgiveness of sins and entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So I want, just for a few moments, maybe as you reflect on the cross and what I shared with you this morning, I want to take just a few moments in the quiet of this place to examine our hearts. Just let's be quiet for just a moment. I'm going to share this with you. If you've never accepted Jesus as Savior, if you've never personally appropriated what He did for you on the cross when He shed His blood for your sin and mine, I would tell you that there will, there is, right now is an opportune time to ask Jesus to be your Savior. And if you would like to do that, I would encourage you just in your own heart to repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I know that I deserve the punishment you bore for me on the cross. I confess to you that I need a Savior. Please forgive me of my sins. I choose right now to turn from my own rebellious ways and to walk with you in obedience and faith. I choose to turn my life over to you. Thank you for loving me so much that you would die for me. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer... Jesus has come into your life and heart. It's just an act of faith. It's believing what we just prayed. And with heads bowed, you just do that for a moment longer. If any of you prayed that prayer, would you just let me know quickly by raising your hand? Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to congratulate you. You are now children of God. And I would encourage you to tell someone you know who's a follower of Jesus Christ about the decision that you made this morning. I would encourage you to read your Bible and to pray and to find a church, this one or another Bible-believing church, to worship and fellowship with. And with those who will be serving us, for we're going to partake of communion with Would those who will be serving us come forward at this time? And please, you can begin to do that. Once you have been served, please hold the elements and we will partake together. 
And I would let you know that you need not be a member of our church to partake of communion with us. The worship team will be singing as the elements are passed. I would encourage you to take note of the words as they are sung. go ahead and begin opening these. They can be a little tricky at times. For me too.
Go ahead and remove the wafer if you would. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup. Well, we don't stay at the cross, do we? Now the rest of the story. In Rudyard Kipling's book, The Jungle Book, Mowgli, the man-cub, asked the animals, what's the most feared thing in the jungle? He's told that when two animals meet on a narrow path, that one must step aside and let the other pass. The animal that steps aside for no one would then be the most feared. Mowgli wants to know what kind of animal would that be. One tells him it's an elephant. Another tells him it's the tiger. Finally, the wise old owl exclaims, The most feared thing is that in the jungle is death. It steps aside for no one. And we find that statement to be true. It doesn't matter how physically strong, financially rich, fantastically popular, or overwhelmingly powerful anyone might be, no one is exempt from death. Someone has said the only sure things in this life are death and taxes. Well, the Bible doesn't speak, well, it does speak to taxes. It doesn't say, though, that it's the only sure thing in life, but it doesn't speak, it does speak to death as well. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it tells us, it is appointed to all men once to die, and after that the judgment. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2, it says, for death is the destiny of every man. But Jesus was different. Yes, he was destined to die on the cross, but he was not destined to stay in the grave. Since he was God in the flesh, death had to step aside for him. And we read of that in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. It says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early in the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and then asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified? He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. 
He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. <laughs> it's happened. It's happened. Just like Jesus said, he rose from the dead. Like a coward steps aside for the brave, death cowered in the presence of the power of Jesus Christ. Romans 6.9 tells us, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. So today we celebrate Easter. It is the celebration of the resurrection because not even death could keep Jesus Christ down. And, and what's the importance of the resurrection? What is it that separates Jesus from all of the other religious leaders in the world? Well, it's that death stepped aside for Him and not for them. Death did not step aside for Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius. Their religious te teachings made an impact on the world but they died never to see life again. But Jesus was more than a great teacher, more than a man. He was God and proved it. He proved His superiority over all religious teachers by conquering the grave. Someone has said, to this day, hundreds of millions of people put their faith in Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius, but... They all died centuries ago. Not one of them rose from the dead. Not, none claimed that they would come back from the dead. Of all the great spiritual leaders who walked the earth, Jesus is the only one who died and then rose again from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is the most important and crucial tenet of our faith. If the resurrection did not happen, then the claims of the New Testament are nothing more than a lie. Mathematician and Christ follower Arthur Ramsey put it bluntly, no resurrection, no Christianity. Without the reality of the resurrection, our Bible is just a collection of good sayings and good advice. The resurrection is important to our faith because it's what guarantees the absolute validity about who Jesus was and the truth of what He taught. If there was no resurrection of Christ, then our faith is based on the teachings of a mere man. So, consider with me for a moment the inherent difficulties if the resurrection story of Jesus is just that, just a story. See, if there's no resurrection, then there's no life after death. If Jesus stayed in the grave, then so will we. If His work on earth ended at the cross, He can't give eternal life to anyone because you cannot give away that which you do not possess yourself. If there was no resurrection, then there's no meaning in life. This world is a pretty meaningless place without the hope of eternity. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, the Apostle Paul wrote, If we have hope in Christ only for this life, 
we are the most miserable people in the world. If there is no resurrection, then there is also no forgiveness of sins. Again, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you, you are still under condemnation for your sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential for us to have any hope at all. And essential means indispensable. It's something we cannot do without. There's no hope for a meaningful life without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pastor and theologian S. Lewis Johnson has said, the resurrection is God's amen to Christ's statement, it is finished. If there is no resurrection, we would still be held captive by the power of death. And the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Since the children have flesh and blood, He too, Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by His death He might break the power of Him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who for all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Aren't you glad that we need not fear that in our lives because Jesus rose from the dead? I, I think I've shared this before with, with the congregation here. I did a, a funeral a number of years ago when we pastored on the Oregon coast. And, and it was a tragic situation. A young mother and her daughter were coming home from Portland to the coast, um, crossed the center line, which was a two-lane road, and um, ran head-on into a semi-truck, and both were killed. And, and I did the funeral service and then the graveside afterwards, and I'll never forget, the young lady's father came up to me and said, Pastor, we're okay. We believe in the resurrection. That's our hope, isn't it? Folks, the stone was not rolled away so Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so we could look in. The U.S. Postal Service once had to return a letter addressed to Christ the King. You've seen those yellow labels they put on when they return uh, uh, an envelope like that? It said, return to sender, Christ the King, moved, left no address, unable to forward. <laughs> Folks, we will not find him in the tomb. He's not there. Where is he? In bodily form, he's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. He is present wherever Christians gather, always with us because he lives inside believers through his Holy Spirit. And because Jesus was resurrected, we can have a fresh start. Remember from the passage I just read about the resurrection, it says, go tell his disciples and Peter. And I don't think it's any coincidence that the discovery of the tomb took place very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. It was dawn. It was the first day of the week. 
It was a new beginning, a fresh start. No one would have appreciated this more than Peter. He was one of Jesus' disciples and promised Jesus early on Good Friday that he would never abandon him or deny him, no matter what happened. But Peter, like the other disciples, fled when Jesus was arrested. He also carries the the distinction of being the one who denied knowing Jesus three times that same night. And it's, it's very likely that Mark, who wrote this gospel that we read from, received the tradition or oral account of the things said and done by Jesus from Peter and wrote them down. And if that's the case, you can almost picture it as Peter gets to this part of the story about Jesus rising from the dead, and he begins to say those words that he was told the angels said, those words that might have meant the world to him, he might have gotten a lump in his throat just saying them, go tell his disciples and Peter, and Peter. Make sure Peter knows that Jesus rose from the dead. Because as guilty as he feels right now, he especially needs to know that he can have a fresh start. And perhaps there are some here today we've made mistakes. You know what it's like to suffer the consequences of sinful choices. Maybe you're feeling guilty. Sometimes you wish you could start over. Maybe you could use a fresh start on life. And because Jesus rose from the dead, you can have one. That is the joy and power of the resurrection. It's about new life, new hope, fresh starts. That's why there are baby chickens and baby ducks and spring flowers at Easter. It's all about new life and fresh starts. It certainly was for Peter. And it is for all of us. So I think it's pretty easy to see, isn't it, that Jesus' victory over death does bring celebration to life? One of the most important battles ever fought was on June 8, 1850 in Belgium, a place called Waterloo. England, under the command of General Wellington, joined forces with the Dutch, the Belgians, and the Prussians to defeat a military genius by the name of Napoleon. If Napoleon could defeat Wellington in England, then he would have most all of Europe. His lost empire would be rebuilt, and France would be victorious. So the battle raged on and on, and all of England waited for word that would come out of Belgium. There were no phones, no radios. A ship would flash a message through light signals from the battlefront on to another spot, in which in turn would signal to England. On the decisive point, the ship got as close as they could to the battle. And as the signal came back, England wondered who was winning the war as it was getting near to the end. Then one of those dense fogs set in that England is so famous for. Just as the message was flashed, Wellington defeated, 
but they couldn't make out the rest of it due to the fog. So we went to bed that night convinced of defeat and wondering how soon it would be until the army of France would march into the streets of England. But early the next morning, the fog lifted and they could read the whole message. Wellington defeated the enemy at Waterloo. On that Judean hillside, Jesus was crucified and the fog was there on Good Friday. But it was clear on Sunday morning. The message was clear. Jesus defeated the enemy at Calvary. He rose and He gives us reason to celebrate. The November 2001 Sports Illustrated magazine was covering the Baseball World Series in which the the Arizona Diamondbacks recovered from a slump to defeat the New York Yankees in the last inning of the final game. It started the editors thinking about the greatest comebacks in history. So, they produced their list of the top ten comebacks of all time. It was quite a broad list. Elvis Presley was on it as a result of his TV special in 1968 that revived his sagging career. Muhammad Ali made the list when he returned from his forced seven-year exile from boxing to reclaim the world championship. Harry Truman made the cut owing to his 1948 victory over Thomas Dewing when all the polls had him losing by a large margin. When Michael Jordan gave up baseball and returned to his first love of basketball, he found a spot on the top ten comebacks in history. Even all of humanity was on the list after recovering from the black plague of the 14th century when 25 million Europeans died. Number two among the all-time comebacks was a tie between Japan and Germany, devastated in the Second World War, but becoming world economic powers within a generation. And the number one, named by the editors of Sports Illustrated magazine, in the November 12, 2001 issue, the greatest comeback of all time, Jesus Christ, A.D. 33. The, the greatest comeback of all time is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for those who have put their faith in Jesus as Savior, it will be our greatest comeback as well. He is risen. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for your attention. Let's sing together. Let's go and stand. And we'll sing Christ Arose. Oh, 
the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow.
Amen. Beautiful choir. Well, we pray that you would go on. You're coming up, too. Well, thank you. It's been a joy to have you in worship with us this morning. Uh, I pray God's blessing upon you. Go in the power and joy of the resurrection. You are dismissed. Sarah, I don't know if you met her today. She came and scooped me up. She was not at the funeral. That was the oh.